Our text this morning is John chapter 3, verses 11 through 15, and this is God's holy word. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how then can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Heavenly Father, again, we come to you now and we simply ask this. Do your mighty work and accomplish your will in the preaching and hearing of your holy word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. One of the more difficult things about living in our present age is knowing whom to believe. Wouldn't you agree? In our culture, people are inundated with data. People all around you seem to know facts that obviously everybody with any sense will believe. Yet, if you listen to somebody else, you'll find that the facts from one group are dismissed out of hand by the next. Think of how many topics we know of where people, honest people, sensible people disagree. Now, I'm not talking morality even here, right? Simply issues of facts. Like, I know people who genuinely believe in the benefits of chiropractic care. I know others who believe it's all non-medical dishonesty and just this side of voodoo. I know some people who believe with supporting data in the benefits of essential oils and natural remedies. How many essential oil people have I got? Yeah, a few of you. God bless your rotten hearts. I know other people who think, again, it's just this side of witchcraft. You know, I've got to blend these special oils together and then I'll dab them on your forehead at midnight in the light of a gibbous moon. And um, No, God bless you guys. I know some people who believe that the wearing of masks is scientifically proven to save lives. And I know others who believe that the wearing of masks is scientifically proven not to do so and to do harm to the body. And in our world, I think we understand it can be difficult to make life decisions when you have people, genuine people, honest people, not foolish people, disagreeing on which sources to trust for their information. But if that's hard, imagine how hard it is to know what to think about bigger issues, more hidden issues, spiritual issues. Whom do you trust? for solid information about heaven? Whom can we trust about issues related to God and how to be right with God? After all, there are people out there who have different views. Does that mean that we cannot find any way to know what to believe? Let me tell you an old story. I cannot vouch for this story's historicity, but it illustrates the point very well. Story goes that in the early 1900s, a man was driving an original Ford Model T. And as the man traveled down a bumpy road that was designed for horses and carts more than the newfangled invention of Mr. Ford, his car began to experience a problem and the engine sputtered and died. And the driver got out of his car and he began to look at the engine, but this man had no idea what to do. He saw metal things, 
He saw things that looked like little pulleys. Some parts were really hot. Some parts were cool to the touch. Some parts seemed to have something inside them, liquid of some sort. He had no idea what to empty or what to fill. He had no idea what to tighten or what to loosen. He had no idea what at all to do to make his car start again. Along that same road then came another man, an older man, also driving a Model T. This man stopped his car and he asked the driver of the broken down car if he needed help. And the stranded driver happily, eagerly accepted help. Though he really wondered how could anybody possibly help with such a complicated contraption. Well, the older man, he took a look at the stalled automobile. He made a couple of quick adjustments. And then he asked the younger driver to try to crank the engine and the motor roared to life. That amazed the younger driver, you might imagine. And as the two men shook hands, the younger driver said to his new friend, I can't thank you enough. I would have been stranded here were it not for your help. No problem, said the older man. I'm happy to help you. How did you know how to fix one of these? Asked the younger man. I was totally at a loss. Simple, replied the good Samaritan. I'm the man who invented it. See, it was only then that the young driver realized that he had just met Henry Ford himself. That sounds like a pretty good help, doesn't it? It's one thing for you to be stranded and have to figure out your problem for yourself. But what a great thing it would be to have the one who designed the whole thing standing right there beside you, telling you what to do. Yes, I would say to you that determining whose facts to trust in our world can be hard. And I can imagine that for some folks, figuring out how to make it to heaven could be a very difficult thing. But imagine if the one who made heaven and earth was willing to talk to you and tell you what he knows. Imagine how helpful that would be. Well, in our study for today, we have the words of the one who came to earth from heaven to bring us salvation. And he's going to tell us to trust him. And he's going to tell us exactly what's required for us to be rescued by God. You know, last week we saw the beginning of a conversation between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a popular Jewish teacher. He wanted, he wanted to learn a little more about Jesus. And Jesus made it clear that Nicodemus didn't know half as much about God as Nicodemus thought he did. And Jesus then told Nicodemus, we heard this last week, that Nicodemus must in fact be born again. Born again if he ever wanted to see the kingdom of God. When Nicodemus, as you might imagine, was confused. He didn't understand what Jesus meant. Then after a bit more conversation, Jesus helped Nicodemus to see that being born again, it's a spiritual thing. It's like a baby being born. It's like the blowing of the wind. New spiritual life comes to man from an outside force, the grace of Almighty God. And this new life involves God cleansing us from our sins and giving us his spirit. <laughs> I was thinking about that just this morning. When we, when we sang Rock of Ages, 
that beautiful, beautiful line where he says, to be of sin, the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. Yeah, that's good writing right there. So as we move forward with the words of the Savior here, we're going to stop hearing comments and questions from Nicodemus. Nicodemus closes his mouth. And with the double truly of verse 11, we get the beginning of one of the seven discourses in this gospel. And in this section, Jesus is going to teach us about how to have eternal life. We're going to study it. And if you're writing notes, we'll find two key points. And along the way, we're going to look back at a powerful Old Testament event that depicts the gospel in great clarity. So point number one for you who are note takers, trust Jesus's words about salvation. Trust Jesus's words about salvation. That's verses 11 through 13. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. You know, John's the only gospel writer who records Jesus using the double truly, truly, truly. When you read it, you better understand that Jesus is about to tell you something important. And here, Jesus is about to say something of great importance as to why he is the person to trust regarding the things of heaven. And before we get to Jesus' point, though, think back or even look back at the beginning of this conversation. Do you remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus back up in verse 1 and 2? In verse 2, Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. And he emphasizes the we. Nicodemus is not speaking alone. He's speaking for a group. Here Jesus responds with a we of his own. Jesus said, hey, uh, we speak of what we actually know. What's Jesus getting at? Jesus is saying, y'all, Nicodemus, the Jews... You think you know, but we, Jesus, maybe the prophets included, certainly the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we tell you what we actually know. So here's the question. How does Jesus know what Nicodemus doesn't know? Well, Nicodemus talks about things he's only read about. Jesus is telling Nicodemus about something he has seen and experienced. Jesus has first-hand knowledge of the plan of God. Jesus has first-hand knowledge of heaven. After all, Jesus is God the Son. Jesus came to earth from heaven. Jesus, he's not giving Nicodemus his best guess as to how things might be. Jesus knows from personal knowledge that's far beyond anything Nicodemus could ever imagine. Y'all, this is better than having Henry Ford fix your Model T. This is God telling you about God's ways and about God's heaven. Unfortunately, Nicodemus and his friends don't believe what Jesus has told them. Even though Jesus has been bringing direct truth from God, Nicodemus has thus far not been able to accept it. 
Verse 12, Jesus says, I've told you earthly things. You know what, guys? This stuff about being born again, this is the simple stuff. This is first grade stuff. If you can't get this, how will you possibly understand, Jesus asks, if I try to tell you the big stuff, the hard stuff, if Nicodemus won't believe the simplest things that Jesus has already told him so far, ain't no way Nicodemus is going to be able to handle heavenly truths and the real mysteries of God. Then verse 13, he says, No one from earth has gone up to heaven to bring this truth down. Only the Son of Man, that's Jesus, has come down from heaven to bring this truth to man. And there it is again. Jesus has come to Nicodemus, to us, from heaven. Jesus has firsthand eyewitness personal knowledge. So why do you and I need to believe this stuff about the second birth? Why? believe this stuff about spiritually being born again? The answer is because Jesus, who told us, is God. That's why Jesus, who told us, is God. Jesus is the one who knows the rules because Jesus is the one who made the rules. No man grasps the mind of God fully. But Jesus, who is God, he has helped us to see the truth of God. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. And all along in this gospel, John has been trying to tell you and me, Jesus is God, come to earth. And because of his identity, Jesus knows more than you or me about God to an infinite degree. Now, on the other hand, the view of mankind falls tragically short. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to what? Who knows? There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end, it leads to, yes, death, destruction. That's where our best guesses lead us. It's better to trust God. Y'all, God knows God. Sinful man does not know God unless that man has been given revelation from God. Jesus is God. Jesus tells us how to know God. We would be fools, fools leaping to our very deaths if we chose to ignore Jesus and do things our own way. So friends, this is not a debatable, supposed fact being spun by the modern news media. This is reality I'm giving you. Jesus is God who tells you how to know God and your best bet is to listen to him and trust Jesus' words about salvation. And the beautiful thing here is, if you'll believe Jesus about the simple stuff, if you'll believe him about salvation, the hint is, He's going to help you then to get to know God more and more deeply. As you walk with Jesus, as you believe Jesus, as you study his word in scripture, you will be able to understand glorious heavenly things too. So, I think we see that we should trust Jesus' words and why. The question is, what does he next tell us about salvation? 
interestingly, he's going to teach us about salvation by comparing himself to an Old Testament event involving a snake on a pole. So point number two, believe in Jesus for salvation. Believe in Jesus for salvation. Trust Jesus' words about salvation. Believe in Jesus for salvation. Verse 14 and 15 says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So here we start looking at the section, and it's important to remember, Jesus is speaking to a well-educated Jewish teacher. Nicodemus well could have had the entire Old Testament memorized. So we should not be surprised at all that Jesus would make an allusion to an Old Testament passage. Last week, Jesus talked to Nicodemus. He told Nicodemus, you've got to be born again to see the kingdom of God. And Jesus made a subtle allusion because when Jesus says, hey, you know what the new birth is? It is a birth of water and the Spirit. That alluded to a passage in Ezekiel that Nicodemus would have known. Ezekiel chapter 36, 25 to 27. Listen again. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. There's the water of water and the Spirit. And you will, you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God hinted at a birth, I didn't use the word birth here, cleansing water, filling spirit. God promised through Ezekiel a salvation is coming for his people and that salvation is a gift from God. It's not a result of obedience to commands. No earthly sacrifice brings about this new life. The saved are going to be cleansed by God. The saved are going to be given new hearts by God. The saved are going to be filled with the Spirit of God. And without that kind of salvation, no person can even see the kingdom of God. And if Nicodemus was understanding Jesus, he would have seen that God's promised new covenant was on the lips of Jesus right here. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, People were physically born into the people of God because they descended from Abraham. That's why why circumcision of infants was the sign or the mark of the Old Covenant because you were physically born into the Old Covenant. Didn't even matter if the child was ready to believe. Had nothing to do with that. Entry into the covenant in the Old Testament was a physical birth. But the new birth, a birth of the cleansing water of God and filling spirit of God, that birth is a spiritual birth. And only those who have new birth, only those who have spiritual birth are going to be, are in, are the ones under the new covenant. Unlike the old, in the new, there is no such thing as a non-believer included under the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, the other new covenant passage that's so prominent. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Sound like that Ezekiel passage. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Listen to this. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The new covenant, not a covenant you're physically born into, but a covenant you are spiritually born into, promises forgiveness, New hearts with God's laws written on them and true spiritual life. The new covenant promises that those who become the people of God will remain the people of God, unable to break the covenant. The new covenant builds off of the old, yes, but the new covenant is greater than the old covenant and Nicodemus should have seen it. He should have expected it. But as we saw last week, Nicodemus did not yet have spiritual eyes to see what God had promised. Neither did he yet understand what it means to become a part of the covenant people of God, the new covenant people. So in order to explain how a person receives eternal life and enters into the new covenant, Jesus brings to mind another Old Testament narrative And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And maybe that story from Jesus is a little obscure to you, but to Nicodemus, this story was absolutely obvious. It's found in Numbers chapter 21. I'd I'd ask you to turn there for a moment. Numbers 21. And it's set during the days of Israel's wilderness wanderings. You guys remember the the wilderness wanderings, don't you? What did the people of Israel mostly do when they wandered? Grumbled and griped and complained. Look at Numbers 21, 4 and 5. We'll start there. It says, From Mount Hor they set up uh, by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. Here we go. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. By the way, do you see the humor in that sentence? There's no food and we hate it. If there's, if there's food, you can't say there's no food. Anyway, okay. So, the people in Numbers 21 are sinning against God. You with me there so far? God has led them. God has provided for them. They're griping about it. They're impatient because of the journey. They speak out against Moses, who's God's chosen leader for them. They speak out against the food that God has been miraculously providing for them. They speak out against God himself. They show a lack of faith in God and their words demonstrate that they have rebellious hearts against the Lord. Then verse six, 
Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So what's the result of their outcry, their rebellion against God? God sent snakes into the camp, and many of the people died. And before you let yourself be offended by that, understand that that is perfectly in keeping with the agreement that Israel made with God, where they said, if we sin against you, feel free to destroy us. But it's also perfectly in keeping with the fact that God is the creator and has every right to judge every human being for the wages of sin is death. So then verse 7, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. It's good. The people recognize that they've sinned. They know that they've done what's wrong in the sight of God. They, they confess that the actions they've taken were wrong. And they ask Moses, Moses, please talk to God for us. And, and in doing that, they're actually going to God because Moses was chosen by God to speak for him to the people. And, and, and they spoke to him to get the message to God, although God heard from God's, God hears everything. But look at verses 8 and 9. Here's, here's how the story wraps up. And this takes you back to what Jesus said. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Y'all, this is so fun. God gives mercy to the people. But how he does it, a little bit on the interesting side. God tells Moses, okay, make a replica of one of the poisonous snakes out of bronze and put it on a big tall pole in the middle of the camp. And if somebody's snake bitten, they can look at the snake on the pole and they will not die from the poison of the snake bite. And Moses obeys and God's way, of course, works. But here's the question. Think with me here for a second. How odd is this story to your mind? Does it feel weird to you? How odd is God's command, God's solution? Okay, guys, poisonous snakes are biting you. I get it. So here's the thing. I'm going to make a snaky statue, and you just look at it, and you'll be fine. How many of you like that for your medical plan? Now, if you and I were the ones who devised the way to be freed from the judgment of the snakes, I don't think that would have naturally been our first choice. What would seem to be the right way to people like you and me? Some of you would say, all right, here's the cure. If you go out and do 10 good deeds to make up for every one bad deed, then maybe God will heal you. That sounds like a human solution, doesn't it? Or maybe, maybe your solution would be, well, if God's really solving this problem, he's going to teach us to make a special medicinal ointment from divinely you know, revealed ingredients and herbs and peppermint oil, and, and it will just, it'll just take the disease away, right? Doesn't that sound like a human solution? Or maybe... Maybe you should just be really, really nice to 
other people who've been bitten by the snakes so you can be safe if snakes bite you. That sounds like something people would come up with. Or, I mean, honestly, honestly. First of all, if it is the era before the 12-gauge shotgun has been invented, because that's my solution to a lot of snake problems, Maybe, maybe you need to put on some big old thick sole shoes and just go through the camp stomping snakeheads. That's a human solution, isn't it? Or some people would say, make a sacrifice to the snake on the pole. See, those are all human mindset sort of solutions. And those fit the mindsets of every world religion that exists other than biblical faith. But not one of the things I just listed was God's plan. The last thing that you expect is that a look toward a snake on a pole could save you from the poison of a snake. That doesn't require enough effort in our minds. It doesn't seem to physically address the problem enough. But that was God's given solution. So here's the question. What did it require to be healed? One thing. Faith. It was God's grace coming through faith in God that healed the people. It was not the metal snake on a pole. It did nothing. But the God who commanded the people to look, that's who healed. The people did nothing. They performed no religious act to be healed. They made no sacrifice to be healed. They performed no act of community service to be healed. They simply trusted God enough to look at the snake and God healed them. People struggle to think God would do something amazing like that without us doing something to earn it. People start saying, oh, you know, you, you got you to earn things from God. You, gotta, you, you don't just get them given to you. Other people think that the outward symbols, the religious rituals and the relics, those earn you favor with God. You guys know, don't you, that several centuries after Moses, during the reign of King Hezekiah, We find out that the people of Israel, they forgot that it was faith in God that healed them from the snake bites. And they began to believe that there was magic in the bronze snake. 2 Kings 18 verse 4 says, He, Hezekiah, removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. Can you imagine? These people made an idol out of something God graciously gave to them. They worshiped the thing instead of the God who gave it to them. They got caught up in the symbol and ignored the God the symbol was actually supposed to point them to. That is human nature at its center right there, folks. The people in Numbers, they were guilty of sitting before God. God righteously threatened and sent judgment in the snakes. 
The people confessed their sin to God. They asked for grace. God lovingly provided the way for them to be healed in the bronze snake. Those who trusted God enough to do the one thing God said were healed. And we must assume that everybody who refused to trust God enough to look at the snake died. That's the story Jesus mentions in our text today back in John chapter 3. And Nicodemus would have known that story by heart. What's Jesus saying to Nicodemus? How are we to be born again? How are we to get into God's kingdom? John 3, 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus said the Son of Man must be lifted up. Well, who's the Son of Man? That's the person Jesus said came down from heaven with the truth about getting into God's kingdom back in verse 13. And we know this is Jesus. This is one of Jesus's favorite things to call himself. Jesus said the Son of Man must be lifted up. That's a common phrase used to refer to being crucified. How do I know? John 12, 32 and 34 Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How then can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Even the people knew that lifted up means crucified. As Moses, Jesus said, put a bronze serpent on the pole... So Jesus will be lifted up. Jesus will be crucified. And this will be so that whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life. People looked at the bronze serpent and they were healed from a physical danger. Faith brought physical healing. In Jesus, people may look in faith and receive spiritual healing. You know, Jesus has already used in his conversation with Nicodemus, twice he has used earthly things to indicate spiritual realities. He used birth, he used wind, those both to explain God's work in giving us spiritual life. Here, he uses Moses and the snake. It's a physical illustration of a spiritual reality. Here's a question for you. Would Nicodemus have had anything else from the Old Testament to know that forgiveness of sins comes by faith? You bet he would. Genesis 15, 6, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Nicodemus, if his spiritual eyes were opened by God, could have seen clearly from the Old Testament that Abram was saved by grace through faith, not through religious action. Abram's religious actions came after he was forgiven, not before. So what's the bottom line here? You and I are like the people in the desert. I guess technically we are people in the desert. You and I, every one of us, has sinned before a perfect and holy God. You and I are rightly under the wrath of God and the judgment of God because we've sinned against God. This is true of every human being. And if we're left to ourselves, we will die like the people who were snake-bitten. Except our death will be eternal spiritual death for our sin against the Holy God. We deserve death 
But as in the desert, God has loving, lovingly provided a way for us to be healed. And it's not about physical healing of snake bites. It's about spiritual healing and rescue from the wrath of God. And the way for you and me to be made right with God is through God's only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus was lifted up. He died on a cross and he paid the penalty on that cross for every single sin God will ever forgive. And this is the major point. If you want to be forgiven by God, if you want to be in God's kingdom, you must look to Jesus in faith. Jesus said you must be born again. How do you know if you've been born again? You know it by whether or not you can put your faith in Jesus for the eternal salvation of your soul. The people in the desert, they just looked at the snake. They were healed. They could do nothing more. All you can do is look to Jesus and trust in him. You cannot make yourself right with God by any other way. Are you willing to give up any other thoughts of being good enough to get into heaven? Are you willing to give up any other thoughts of earning God's favor? Are you willing to give up all other religions and all false gods? Are you willing to stop trying to be the boss in control of your own life? Are you willing to settle on Jesus and Jesus alone for your soul's salvation? That's what God commands. And if you can rest your soul in Jesus' care, trusting in his death on the cross as enough to save you eternally, trusting in his rising from the grave to save you eternally, then you have been born again. And being born again will always work itself out in your life as a life marked with a desire to love and obey Jesus. So yes, believe Jesus' words about salvation. Believe in Jesus for salvation. And when you know Jesus, praise him and him alone for your salvation. Let's pray together, friends. Lord God, as we are gathered here, we say thank you because you, O oh God, have provided the only means of salvation. God, I thank you that my salvation is not about me being good. I thank you that my salvation is not about me being religious. I thank you that my salvation is not about me keeping it. But my salvation is about this and this alone. Jesus Christ died to pay the price for my sins and rose from the grave. A look in faith to the Savior. A look that you enable because no one can see the kingdom of heaven unless he's born again. That look saves because it's your grace given through faith in the perfect, finished work of Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for salvation. Thank you for the true gospel. I pray now, Lord, that you will help everyone in this room look to Jesus in faith for salvation. God, have mercy on us. Encourage us and inspire us. We pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.